0: Hello, and welcome to Wonderful. I'm David Pearl, the founder of Street Wisdom, and this is a podcast we've designed for anyone who wants to get some inspiration on the go. Today, a lot of us are listening to podcasts while we walk. Wonderful is a podcast designed specifically for that, a podcast to walk to, something to put a bit of wonder in your wonder. You're welcome to listen to this as you wander around your home or lying on the sofa even. You'll find inspiration is actually everywhere. But if you've got a bit of time, and let's face it, we've all got a bit of time, let's boot up and head out into the street. Hello out there, wanderellas, wonderfellas, wonderfools all, how are you? Um, I'm wet, I'll be honest. I thought seriously about not coming out today, as the weather is wild. Uh, but I thought no, I thought I thought weather is just nature 's way of reminding us that cities are natural too, right so out I am i 'm out in the wet with my umbrella. you can probably hear my i 've got my street wisdom umbrella. Andrew is tucked up comfy in Glasgow, looking all warm and smug as I brave the weather out here but i there was another reason I wanted to come out and uh, and 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 brave the brave the wind and the rain because um I met my, today's guest, this episode's guest, in very similar conditions. Uh, I do quite a lot of public speaking around the world, and uh, occasionally you bump into somebody on the circuit, you just think, I want to be your friend. And when I met Philip Blom, uh, I just thought, you're amazing. It was in a tent, it was in a corporate event, of uh, a company that was thinking hard about its impact on the environment. And so they went out into the environment, they got a big tent, and plonked it down in a field, and the wind lashed, and the wind and, and, and the rain blew. No, it's the other way around. But it was freezing. All, everyone was wrapped in blankets. Um, but the power, and frankly, the joy of Philip's lecture, talk, came through. Philip's an amazing man. He's, he's a journalist and an historian, but he's, a, he's, 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 he's what he describes himself, I think, as an eco-historian, because what he does is he looks back into history, and sees it through the lens of what the weather was doing, what, 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 what the environment was doing. And it's written, by the way, a wonderful book called Nature's Mutiny, in which many books, but the one I like the most so far, is called Nature's Mutiny, and it is about the mini ice age that gripped Europe between the 15th and 17th centuries. And he tracks beautifully uh, the changes that just one degree of temperature made to politics, to geography, to culture, to trade. Amazing. And without really mentioning it too often, he's asking us to think about what the potential ramifications of the, of the, of the climate change we're experiencing uh, now is. It's a beautiful, beautiful book, beautiful man. And I got all excited to the point where I jumped on a train and went from London to Vienna, where he lives, and spent a fantastic few days uh, trawling around some of the most wonderful old cafes of Vienna where you can sit for a day and just sip a cold coffee and no one bothers you. It's a delight, as a as cafe lover as I am. Heaven, heaven. So we're going to drop into the conversation with uh, Philip. Um, and this was in his flat. Uh, and we covered a very broad range of topics. He's a very got a very broad mind. Um, we talked about mapping and how that's done and he talked about how he uses the streets to get inspiration for his many books and articles and it was all done with this wonderful, this man has got a glint in his eye and a sense of joy even when he's talking about some quite somber, sober things. So I, I know you're going to enjoy Philip Blom so all I will say is uh, let's get going, off to Vienna. Was smiling when I when I talked about the Flannery movement. You probably know more about it than I do. Um, was I was, I was
1: smiling that you that you called it a movement because while they were all on the move, <laughs> they were definitely anything but a movement. You know, there's nothing organised about it. That's the whole point. Yeah, yeah. It's you losing yourself in the crowd. Um, and you know, there's no program about it and no organization behind it, and um, it is the very opposite of that.
0: Yes, it's a sort of unmovement. <laughs> yes. Just, I mean, there is in street wisdom this, this notion of emergence, the deliberately getting lost, the wander rather than walking, the whole essence of wonderful is to do something that we were generally told not to do as kids, which is not to dawdle or loiter. Or be vagrant. I mean,
1: that's to me the chief joy of discovering a new city, or even a city I know well, to get lost in it. I mean, you know, I wouldn't want to do that in Lagos, but, um, you know, as long as it's a city where you've got a decent chance of getting out alive. (laughs) It's just fantastic to end up in a street you didn't know existed, and find that little bar where people are sitting and you sit down there and have a coffee or a beer and you just watch life going by and, you know, after an hour or so you think, well, now it would be really interesting to know where the hell I am and <laughs> how I can get back to wherever I need to be. But I think getting lost, getting lost and doing something that is, that is, I think, gets sanitized out of our digital world, digitized world evermore, which is facing the unexpected. Just, you know, bumping into something, noticing something that you never knew was there, just being present at some sort of curious coincidence or random happening. Um, That doesn't happen in our sort of programmed digital lives that are run by algorithms. You know, things are are rule-based in them. And even where there's a random generator, he's also, that is also rule-based, yeah. that is put in at a rule-based place. That's not how, what life's like.
0: You're saying there isn't a pattern behind events. the events.
1: A pattern is always something that you give things. Right. Right. You know, look at history. History is a mess of facts. The number, the exact number of people with red hair in Bamberg in 1753 on the 4th of January is a historical fact. It's also completely irrelevant. But, you know, and out of all those facts, you have to distill the facts that you think mean something. And you have to knit them together into a pattern and relate them to one another. But, yeah. Those are all choices you make. Look at how history has changed over the last hundred years. It was the history of kings and generals and exclusively of men. And, you know, then came women's history and working-class history and the history of, you know, the lost oral histories of colonialized peoples and how you can... Now we're in, and indeed I'm part of that, you know, environmental history. You, you know, we have... For the longest time, seeing human history as something separate mm. from the history of nature mm. and the changes in nature and the mm. changes in the climate mm. and etc. Mm. And now we're beginning to see how stupid that was. Mm. That if you know, if you want to understand the Great Bronze Age collapse, mm. you better look at the weather patterns mm. and what grew and what didn't anymore and stuff like that. So... You know, history changes, but it's a question of which pattern you impose on the mess of facts you have in front of you. You know, finding patterns in that means projecting patterns on that. And that's really like walking around around in a city. I mean, it's essentially the same phenomenon. You know, if you ever break your leg or if you're expecting a child, suddenly the city is filled with people who've got plaster casts on their <laughs> arms and who are carrying babies. Yeah. <laughs> Not probably at the same time. But, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, what you notice. Mm. I always, you know, I always like to compare thinking with, for myself, for my own sort of understanding, with maps. Because, you know, there's this wonderful story by Jorge Luis Borges about the, exact, that was the exactness of the sciences. And he describes that there was a very high culture and somewhere in the Orient, and there was, they were very, really good at map making. And I don't know whether you know that story. And then the Sultan decided he wanted the ultimate map in a scale of one to one. And so they drew this map of the empire that was as large as the <laughs> empire. And they found it very impractical. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, also the world changed and the map didn't, and that was uh, you know, a real problem. And so now there cool. are only a few, little, a few little sort of streaks of material that you can find caught in the bushes, but the thing is gone. Now, why is that an example of a useless map? Because maps are useful because they show the world as it isn't. Mm. Because they select... They, make, they say, you don't need to know this, but you do need to know that. You need to know the main road. Yeah. Or you need to know the petrochemical structure of the underground. Or you need to know the strategic significance. Or you need to know where the old churches stand. Or you need to know where the gay nightclubs are. Whatever you want to know, there's a map for it. Mm-hmm. But it works by leaving out other stuff mm-hmm. and by projecting a pattern on the landscape of the available facts. Mm-hmm. And that's how our thinking works. And that means that by that thinking, it leads us very straight to certain things, and that's great, but it also makes us oblivious to everything else, which is possibly not so great.
0: Mm -hmm. I've just finished reading your book. Uh, Nature's Mutiny, which is a must-read, people. Um, (laughs) You heard the man. I adored that book because, and I will travesty it in summary, I will say that it is a book that makes you think about the current climate change with barely mentioning the current crisis, but instead focusing on the changes that were sparked, if that's the right word, by the mini ice age that happened in the
1: 15, 16. Well, sort of... Look, it very much depends who you ask. <clears throat> right. Different scientists um, have different ways of throwing their own mental maps over, the, over history. Yeah, yeah. But um, it started sometime in the Middle Ages and it ended, some say, only in the 19th century. But this sort of most severe period of it was some sometime between 1570 and say 1680 or so. And Europe became two degrees colder. Now here of course the parallel, the sort of mirror image begins to grow because we're talking about two degrees all the yeah. time. And two degrees doesn't sound very much but as people found out then, you know, now scientists tell us that if it gets two degrees warmer on average these things are stronger in Europe because of Gulf Stream and other factors. And um, our cities will become eight degrees hotter in summer. Now, then, in winter, it was much colder. The winters were much longer. The vegetation periods of the plants became much shorter. And, of course, that was what people survived on. That was agriculture. Um, and that sort of resulted in an interesting sequence of crises that I tried to try to trace in that book, because it begins, as I say, with a crisis of agriculture. Now, that means hunger for people. Hunger also means social unrest, means rebellions, means, you know, farmers depend- defending their, their life and their livelihood. But also in the cities, as grain, the grain price was what the gold standard was in the 19th century, in the cities it meant rampant inflation and poverty and mm. insecurity. Yeah. And so it, you know, the whole of society was shaken by this, but what was most shaken was the medieval worldview that we have a contract with God, and we pray and we more or less obey his laws, we try, or we repent if we didn't, and he gives us his son and gives us food, and you know, this is a working contract. And all of a sudden the food didn't come anymore. And the harvests broke down. And I mean, we're talking real cold. We're talking, you know, in the Thirty Years' War, so 1618 to 80 to 48, entire armies would routinely ride across the Rhine and the Danube in winter. <laughs> With horses and cannons and wagons and you know regiments of men. And that was normal because it was always frozen so thinks that you could just ride an army across it. Now, I don't know when the Danube and the Rhine have last frozen, but you need to go back decades. Yeah. Now, what's really interesting here is so you've got something that doesn't only shake the economy of these societies, but in brackets, as we're seeing today as well, it shakes the self-understanding. Mm. You know, just like today, we have an economic model built on growth and the necessity of growth and all of a sudden growth becomes incompatible with our survival and that means that we sort of think well um well we haven't got another idea we haven't got another answer this has worked very well we live in you know wonderful conditions better than any other generation in history so why should this suddenly be bad but you know, we don't have a plan B. Our cultural model is one thing, and that is now running into trouble. That was very much the situation then. And of course the cultural model was it was a connection to God. So what do you do if the climate
0: goes wild? You pray. I love you. So you pray and burn witches.
1: Yes, you pray, you burn <laughs> witches, you have processions, you flagellate yourself, you carry relics to glaciers to tell them to stop growing and that didn't work terribly well. But, you know, there's... It's interesting to see a culture sort of helpless because the story it was telling itself about itself, you know, we have a contract with God and that's how we live, stops working. Mm. And they haven't really got another model. Mm. And I think that's a very... And you can see how the culture overcame that. Now, first of all, there's a writer to that. Back then, as far as we know, that wasn't man-made climate change or human-caused climate change. It was probably, we don't yet quite understand that, but it was probably variation in solar activity that caused that back then. Now it is very clearly human activity. Mm. So there's a difference in these things. These parallels are never perfect. Um, But in terms of a culture thrashing around and trying out the old answers... And seeing them failing and not knowing what to do, I think you know there is a case for a parallel to be made here. Mm. And in the 17th century, the answer was transforming a society and accepting its total transformation. The total transformation of the economic model, of the social model. You don't forget uh, from this crisis emerges as I. Uh, rather cheekily say the enlightenment mm. because it is a movement of, of a bourgeoisie also mm. that yeah. wants a middle class that wants a share of power and therefore argues but surely we're all equal and now that sounds so flat when you say that because we have learned to accept that even people who don't believe that have learned to accept that that people all people are equal it's what You know, it's written in our books, it's chiseled into our facades, uh, you know, you you name it, it's there. Of course, in the 17th century, this was a dangerous and immoral thought. Mm. Everybody knew that society rested on inequality. Aristocrats were better than farmers, Christians were better than pagans, men were better than women, and that was just how it was. And that was the moral foundation of society, So, so to claim equality all of a sudden was shocking and Mm. radical Mm. and of course meant that it was an attack on the political system. This mere statement, this little sentence that doesn't say anything, is a direct attack on morality and on the political order. I think we are at that point today again that we need, if, if, if we want to survive this crisis in some decent form, in some sort of formless complex societies that have a regard for human rights and luxuries like that. We need to accept the total transformation of our economic system, our political system, our, uh, the way we see the world. And ourselves in the world. And ourselves yeah. in the world. Because yeah. that change will be predicated on the fact that we understand that we're not above and outside nature but that we are rather unimportant animals somewhere in this vast system of nature. Mm. And that this animal, in its own interest, needs to find its modest place in the order of things that it can sustain over a long period of time. Mm. If it manages that, it has a future. If it doesn't, not so much. Mm. But of course, that's a completely different vision of, also of humanity, also of who and what we are and are capable of you know it's bad news for the freedom of will it's bad news for our idea that we're rational individuals we're not that much individuals and we're not that terribly rational either and so you know again out of that very simple thought Mm. like human equality that simple thought we are part of nature Mm. that is a revolution That is. In that and part of that, it's a very exciting revolution. But like every revolution, it is also frightening. Mm. We don't yet know the shape of what's going, what's what's good to, what's to come, and of course, it also runs into a great opposition. And today, the opposition is not only authoritarian dictators and you know, big corporations and commercial lobbies, but it is also, funnily enough the very institutions we've built to defend our democracies Mm. because they bring with them great inertia Mm. you know and if you have great laws to defend everybody's private rights against everybody else's and increasingly complex societies these laws need to become increasingly complex to mirror that then all of a sudden if you want an energy transformation and if you want to have really Decisive change in your society, you get dragged through the courts for decades. Now that's time we don't have. How do we deal with that? Mm. So, an awful lot of interesting and complex questions come Mm. up with that. Mm. That show us that again, you know what what you taught me, and that sentence that I've been thinking about for a long time. That every strength used to excess turns into a weakness. It's a brilliant thought and that's what we're seeing a little bit with our countries at the moment with our societies I think that for instance the strong institutionalization of democracies and societies that was so important in defending rights and in um, building up structures that are rights-based are now becoming a force of inertia that is actually impeding change and the speed of change um, or indeed, I mean, the, 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 biggest, the biggest point in which you see that is that, you know, money really does ruin everything. Um, and our cultures have been so thoroughly commercialized. And, um, you know, I always think that when I look at children, and if you're not terribly careful as a parent, and if you're not terribly willing to have all sorts of nasty conflicts with your kids then every one of their wishes and thoughts and ideas has a product line behind it. Mm. And is sponsored by FIFA or by Disney or by whatever it may be. And has got stuff to buy attached to it. But, you know, that is not only a revolting thought because it sort of exploits the imagination of children, but it also forms the imagination of individuals because if you live in a completely commercialized imagination, then the amount of stories you can tell sinks dramatically. The storylines mm. that you can tell mm. decline dramatically. And you can only tell stories that are as sanitized as Disney characters, you know, bodies without genitals, for instance. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. it becomes a certain kind of imagination that mm. fosters. And so I think, you know, this this sort of threatens to suck us in into a realm in which imagination becomes sort of deadened by you know by commercial interests
0: we talked yesterday about where your ideas come from and i'm i'm awed as somebody that's written with difficulty three books um you've got a whole bank of books and you write fairly regularly um is i picture you strolling around unhooking Strolling around, rolling words around in your mind, and so on and so forth. Trying to or tracking, cracking the structure of a book. Is that is that is that right? Have any books occurred to you unexpectedly out of the blue? Any ideas for books or anything?
1: Well, you have a very idyllic idea of what it's like to be a writer, <laughs> uh, which I can only encourage. <laughs> um, but. You know, you forget the months of intense frustration, total demoralization, en- endless procrastinating, being convinced that it was a terrible idea and now you have to do it because somebody's given you money for it and you're too stupid to do it and anyway nobody will want to read it. And the sentence you've just written is probably the worst thing that you've ever done. And, you know, there's a lot of that. There's an awful lot of that. Mm. Um Ideas sometimes happen, and you have no idea why. And sometimes they're not what you want, and you're really surprised by them. And you think, "What shall I do with this thing?" And you know, then you have to trust it. That works usually, not always. You know, some things you just don't get right. Yeah. um
0: The unexpected I, things. Sorry to interrupt, but you said something yesterday that stuck in my mind. I think it was, you know true critical thought or deep thought leads you to places you don't expect and don't necessarily like. Yeah, of because course. Because you've got to kind of rethink your, your view. Is that right?
1: Well, yes. I mean, look at recent history, you know, we, in the West, I use the West, Western wealth we, um, <laughs> We have known certainly in our childhoods so in the second half of the 20th century still people like us and our families have known that we are wealthy and live in democratic and secure states with beautiful artistic traditions and all that because we chose the right virtues because we were punctual and fair and hard working and rational and all of those things and other people unfortunately were only sort of other cultures various degrees of approximation or distance from that but none of them were quite there which was very unfortunate but we were nice enough to help them better themselves if you're sort of beginning to do any historical work and you see you know, that monster that colonialism was. And I don't want to ethically charge that more because most cultures have been brutal. Most cultures have subjected other people. The Europeans had better technology at a certain point and therefore they were able to do more of that. But the Europeans were not uniquely evil. You know, the, the triangular trade with slaves between the Africa and the Caribbean could not have happened if those unfortunate... Bastards who were sold to slave traders had not been brought to the coast by African slave traders. Um, you know, none of that is to excuse what what happened, but, you know, it simply happened. But it also means that, of course, our wealth and our wonderful civilizations and our technologies and our medicine and our schools and all that are based on centuries of slavery, on massive exploitation of other cultures, of natural resources, mm. Mm. Um, on genocides of various peoples around the world. Um, and that doesn't feel so nice. Mm. There's not much left of having chosen the right virtues. And you look different in the mirror. Mm. and But unfortunately, that's where the evidence points. Mm. And, mm. you know, again, if we really think... About humanity and the climate crisis, then you can say, oh, well, on the one hand, you know, every every species expands, expands as much as it can if you give it the necessary resources. You know, that's happened with rabbits in Australia, and that you know, it's happened with all sorts of uh, animals. And you know, if one animal learns to unlock another resource, then it. Yeah. We don't behave differently than yeast. Mm. You know. there's no. your next
0: book.
1: Yeah, no, no, I've, I've done that. I've done <laughs> that. Well you know, uh, yeast is a fantastic partner organism for humans. It gives us bread and beer and wine, and nice things like that. And you th- throw yeast in a sugary solution, and it eats up everything it can see, and there's an enormous population explosion. And then it suffocates on its own excrements and starves. Um, And the result is wine. Lovely. Um, You know, and a few hundred million years later in evolution, and after Mozart and Marie Curie and other wonders of human genius, we're doing exactly the same as yeast. Um, Which is a bit humbling. (laughs) You know, which doesn't say much for human rationality or intelligence or any of that. But I once told that story, and a, a biologist um, said to me this, but you're not telling the second part of the story. And I said, what's that? And she, she answered, well, you see, the yeast cells that survive the great population collapse, they change their metabolism in order to live in the new chemical environment. So the challenge to us, she said, is really, can we change our metabolism before the catastrophe comes? Well, we would be the first species in the history of evolution to manage that. But if we see ourselves like, you know, in the continuum of yeast, if we see ourselves as a particularly interesting primate that has a more sophisticated language than other animals, that has got you know more sophisticated use of his hands and a higher palate, which is a you know, great help, and other sort of we're obviously vastly more complex than many other animal societies and we have got technologies that chimpanzees haven't, but the genetic difference between us and chimpanzees is as big as the genetic difference between African and Indian elephants, and you know, perhaps it's time to see ourselves in that continuum and in that system, because if we're learning anything about nature, or have been in the last decades it is simply the fact that what physics has already discovered at the beginning of the 20th century it's useless to talk about individual phenomena, you have to talk about systems Uh, whether it's an object in space-time or whether it's um, you know a quantum or an electron in in an energy energy field you need to describe the system to describe say anything useful about the individual and indeed of course you change the state of the individual by describing or at least you fix it but Um, this systemic understanding is now being applied much more to natural systems, to biological systems, to ecosystems, to biospheres, to rivers and things like that. You know, a river can be a border between two countries, but you never see what an enormous connective uh, Mm. engine it is and what an enormous ecosystem of different species and some symbiotic organisms it is in order to work at all and that some life cycles go the entire length of the river. And, um, and so this, this, this change of perspective, a new map, a new mental map, showing us more different destinations and more connecting ways between them, um, also means that we are no longer this sort of image of a human that, you know, Western art, or not only Western art brought us, you know, the marble statue, Beautiful, close towards the outside world, and some are sort of endowed with something superior. But that we become vulnerable and porous and dependent on constant exchanges of substances and social exchanges, and that an individual is really only the mirroring of what comes back from others and is a construct that already is a social phenomenon, etc., etc., etc. But that's As a French friend of mine used to say, it's it's narcissistically not very valorizing. Mm. I mean, it's not very flattering. No longer to think we're the marble statue that stands up there, you know, above it all, and underneath the sort of sprawling, messy nature. But no, 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 we are actually part of that, and we have sort of delusions of grandeur, and we dream ourselves outside of that. But if we want to survive, we have to find our survival inside, and that is, that is a philosophical revolution. And it is also, I think, a psychological insult um, to many people, which is why people are very resistant to... Many people are very resistant to, to thinking about that kind of thing. Um, because if you abolish the extraordinary nature of humans and the they completely um what what's the word I'm looking for? You know the fact that just humans are not part of the mess underneath, and that that has been the image that has carried the last three thousand years of our cultural history you know subjugate the earth tell God tells to Adam and Eve says to Adam and Eve and um They are outside. They're above it. And that has made Western civilization great. That has been an enormous also psychological engine, that dualistic thinking, that separation. Um, And I think it's, you know, it doesn't get us very far to demonize it and talk about the evils of dualistic thinking and Mm. say this is the root of all evil. No, it was a marvelous tool for humanity. But there are times when tools are no longer useful and you Mm. need different Mm. tools. And this is a time when this tool is no longer useful. This tool was great until we got fossil fuels. Because it allowed us to dream and to reach for something beyond. But with fossil fuels, our technological reach has become so devastating and so far that it's no longer a helpful way of thinking. It's not for purpose. No. no. So it's not evil in itself. And, you know, that is not very... In- I'm not very, never very interested in moralizing these questions. Mm. If you make the moral question, first of all, it's rhetorically a bad idea because everybody will immediately go into defensive mode. But also, you know, it's not... It's not that nature is punishing us because we are being naughty. This is not a moral question. Um, The fact is simply we are changing physical systems. And when these systems are different, we can no longer live in them so well. Uh, Also other creatures can't. But that's not a moral question, it's a physics question. Let's look at it as a physics question. And let's say, well, let's not do this because actually it ruins what we're relying on. That's not a good idea. If we want to thrive, we need to foster what we're relying on. We need to make that better and deeper and broader. And then we can live better with it. Uh, But if we're constantly impoverishing it and raping it and exploiting it, we're part of that system. It's going to come back. I do believe that for most people, opinions are like clothes. You put on the same kind of things that your mates are wearing because you want to be accepted in that crowd. And it's really not about whether it's true or not, but whether it keeps you warm. Um, And those are the opinions that most of us, and all of us ultimately, run around with on most days. And they're basically opinions that we have because they make us feel good. About ourselves, that give us a warm feeling in the pit of our stomach. And I always think that's the moment when you think, ah, yeah, well, this is probably wrong. Um, <laughs> because, you know, if you push a little bit further, things get more interesting, but things also get really messy. But, you know, you're probably not who you thought you were. Other people think you're, you know, and probably if you if you want to discover yourself and realize your true self, you've realized that there may not be such a thing, that it's all be more moving and that, you know, that's much more fluid than a static self that is just waiting to be discovered somewhere. Um, You know, our freedom of will and our sort of scope for action doesn't seem to be what we think. We hardly are beginning to understand what nature is about. So the world is much more weird than we think it is, but of course also much more interesting and in that weirdness are much more possibilities for being. It's a bit like, you know, when, you, when you're lucky enough to speak different languages, you find you can actually express really different things. You can be a different person in different languages to some extent
0: because well, you said you write differently, you think differently, or you are different in German yeah, of course. or in English. Yeah,
1: of course. You know, in English you have to be really clear you you have to be exact with what you're saying. And it's probably always slightly with a slightly tongue in cheek what you're writing. Irony always plays plays a certain role. Um you know, German works differently. And so you know, these exploring these different ways of being means also exploring the, the weirdness of the world and that is in a way, you know, sort of exposing yourself to it, walking around in it and seeing things that you otherwise wouldn't see, going to parts of the city you otherwise wouldn't go and um, trying to use and learn that vernacular. Mm. So I think, you know, really committed, useful thinking is about getting past that warm feeling in your stomach.
0: So welcome back to uh, a, w- a wintry, wintry London where the, wi- the weather's slightly less wild, uh, but uh, just listening to, to, to Philip reminding me how warm and cosy those cafes are. My favourite was a thing called Tafelspitz, which is something they bring you, which is just a heavenly, probably very unhealthy combination of sauerkraut and, and meat and potatoes. I was just in heaven. What a lovely man, right? Uh, great guy. And I thought what we could do is we could take uh, his idea. I love this idea that, you know, a map, you can map anything, right? And the, depending on what you're looking at, it will change the way the map looks. So what I'm going to encourage us to do, this is wonderful after all, and we, and we take a fragment of what our guest has, an idea that they put in our minds, and we work with it. We create an experience. So for the next 10 minutes, I'm going to suggest that we... Collectively, do a bit of mapping. We just in a minute, I'm gonna ask you to pause podcast and go off, and do this exercise, and then come back and, and we'll discuss what happened. But um, the simple idea uh, the best ideas are all simple is, is go for a wander, go for a walk, and uh, create a map of I'm gonna say the things that interest you. So basically, you're like a cartographer in a foreign land. And what you're doing is you're making a mental note of the things that attract you. To be honest, you could do this with anything. You could say, I'm going to, map, I'm going to look out for the colour red. And every time I see it, I'm going to mentally place it on my map. Or you could say street names or words or triangles or whatever. It can be whatever you like. I'm going to go with a, a kind of interest map. And so I could imagine in my mind when I come back, I'll have a kind of like a, like a splodgy heat map of the things that interest, interested me. But this is your chance to remap the world, to see the world in a different way. So enjoy, pause right now and uh, go off do some map making. We'll see you in about 10 minutes. So I'm off, I'm just breathing slow and getting my breathing down a bit so I can let go of that. I'm feeling my feet on the ground and I'm about to head off on a map making adventure. Well, hello again, Wanda lovers all. Um, how was that for you? How was that for you? For me, it was really interesting. You know, I, I create these little exercises and I have no idea what's gonna happen. So what happened for me was, uh, I don't know, insights always coming through. So for me, the first one, it became very clear that this was going to be a circular map. It was a bit like I was in the middle of a radar screen and it wasn't just what I was seeing, as what I was sensing. So that's the first thing, this is a circular map. And then, weirdly, it also went global, it went three-dimensional. So it's like a bubble map, of course. Um, the second thing is that um, it's got sounds in it. It's, it's a sound map as well. Because I, I heard a bird and then I heard a car and the, the bird sound was bright and that's in the map. The car sound was just a little bit like a, like a, like a, little, like a little brown smudge in a way. And so that was interesting to me. It's like, oh, this is an interactive map. It's got a three-dimensional and it's got sound. Um, and the other thing, the final thing was if it had a key you know, at the bottom, I thought, it's not really interesting. It's a love map. And th- I was noting the things that I love more or less. But I also noticed that the background wasn't blank it was a sort of so the, the, the more I loved it the more red it was the whole thing was a was a sort of light pink because what's not to love huh I'm out here I'm doing this podcast with wonderful people with you online Andrew it's nearly the end of the year how brilliant uh so that's it that was what happened we'd love to hear what happened with you we love it when you send us your comments and uh to know that you're out there Playing with, the, playing with these lovely ideas out in, out in the wonderful, wonderful world. So, um, that's it for now. I think I need to beat a retreat and go and get dry. Um, thanks for being with us. Look out for the next episode of Wonderful. And meanwhile, go get lost and find answers. Keep it wonderful. Bye. Bye, 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 bye. Now people are looking at me oddly, including my producer, I think we need to cut. I think you need to hit... You need to say cut. Say cut. Cut! Shall we cut, ladies and gentlemen? Yeah, okay, let's cut. Bye! If you enjoyed the podcast, I think you'll really like my book, Wonderful. It's all about how to activate your inner compass so you can find better ways to live, laugh, love, and other things beginning with L. You'll find your copy on Amazon. And if that all sounds a bit salesy, the truth is... All my proceeds go to my non-profit, Street Wisdom, which was set up to offer a fresh, new creative practice, free to people all over the world. Let's face it, the world could do with a bit more creativity, right? Check out streetwisdom.org and you'll find audio guides, news about where events are taking place, and other creative loveliness. If you're looking for your next step, it's a great place to start. So, please like and subscribe to the podcast, and have a wonderful day. Did you see what I did there, Andrew, when I said next steps? That means like both physical and metaphorical next steps. It's, I guess, what we call a play on words. Marketing gold, really.